0: Are you a business owner looking to grow and scale your company? Do you want to prepare your company to successfully take on investment? Start by taking the Become Investable Digital Scorecard Assessment. In less than six minutes, you will have information identifying weaknesses in your business model and receive advice on how to address them. Developed using the signature BI methodology, the scorecard assesses your business based on six key investability metrics and provides a comprehensive report to show you how to build a more investable business. Go to becomeinvestable.com/scorecard today to start your journey to investability.
1: Hello, hello, hello. I am your host Kevin Valley, and in this Become Investable special, we speak to the founding team, Mr. and Mrs. Brian and Ingrid Jara of Cinema One, as they discuss the evolution of Cinema One, the Caribbean's first IMAX experience, the pioneering step of becoming the first SME IPO in Trinidad and Tobago and the challenges of building a sustainable wealth-generating business while also focusing on future growth and possibilities. And now in this feature, we're going to discuss the importance of the IPO for SMEs, how to get to the IPO, what is the process, what does the business valuation process entails, marketing the IPO, evolution of the company, cinema one, including the growth of the brand, some success stories in there, how they develop the customer experience, and of course, the challenge of growing the brand and creating a sustainable business. to enjoy. Thank you for joining us today. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and today we are talking to the husband and wife team behind Cinema One Limited, which started as an idea just eight years ago and has just launched the first IPO on the Trinidad Tobago Stock Exchange as a small and medium-sized enterprise. Brian, Ingrid, thank you very much for joining us today. So first SME IPO, how does that feel?
0: We're very proud, I'll be honest, Uh, being first. um, We've done quite a few firsts, so this is kind of adding to the list of firsts. Uh, And it's pretty exciting times for us in the the cycle of the business.
2: Yeah indeed it's a momentous occasion I think both for our company as well as for the development of the capital markets in in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, The SME sector has kind of been poised for some growth I think for a number of years and it's really a strategic sector for numerous uh, countries and, and certainly I think the role that the capital markets can play in really hoping to spawn more growth is really pivotal. So it's momentous.
1: So when that act came out in 2012, did you immediately think, hey, we eventually want to be the guys to launch our IPO? On
0: I would that? say his brain was ticking, definitely.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think just as a uh, you know a relatively small company trying to raise capital in a, a market like TNT that you know has a dearth of real venture capital or, or equity financing, it certainly sparked an interest that um, was worth exploring in more detail. It uh, kind of signaled that the country wanted to Really try and help out and to promote more entrepreneurship, more uh, you know rapid growth and accelerated growth for smaller companies. So it is certainly something that piqued our interest from the first uh, kind of sight we got of the, the legislation.
0: Okay, I would say that you know with Brian's background, he understood that there are different ways to raise money, um, and he always knew of this way. So when the act came out, you know we knew we started to market with one screen, we knew we weren't going to stay with one screen. So I think when the act came out, it was a natural progression of thinking, you know, that is one way to raise money, to help the business to grow. Okay.
1: Alright, so how long did you take from going from one screen to going to five screens and then eventually going to, well, five screens plus a 40X?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I, I think there's a natural evolutionary process. Um, both Ingrid and I, when we, um, you know, were... Dating, we liked going to the movies. And this was in the the single screen era in in Trinidad, the big six. And, uh, you know, we we went to a number of different big six theaters all around the country and enjoyed the experience. But with my background in California and Ingrid lived in the UK for a while, we certainly were both both very much aware that multiplexes were kind of the way of the future and um, kind of had that as a potential plan, I think, from day one. However, you know, the, the amount of capital that's required to really you know, acquire land and, and to really become part of a significant development with a multiplex kind of from day one, is you know, we, at the time was prohibitive. So the next best thing for us was really to try and focus on what was more achievable. And more achievable was a big screen, but a big single screen, and that became the IMAX idea.
0: Okay. And I think a a movie experience that is not easily duplicated. And being secure because it was a big risk coming to market with all that content and just one screen available to you. Right. Um, so I think when we looked at the landscape of the movie experiences, we needed to start with something that would be with a bang and would have a, a high degree of success.
2: Right, and then and differentiation too. Yes. Because I mean, what makes the IMAX experience unique is certainly it's it's a technology at its core. I mean, we were really the first to have two huge servers. Um, projecting movies on the screen, right um, In fact, the current legislative framework still contemplates film and we were arguing in the early days that well we're, we're not really showing any film we have no film right We have digital content that's uh, you know projected from two huge servers that each weigh a ton and that are protected by numerous patents that afford a range of um, You know, high-end image enhancement, 3D, et cetera, et cetera. All of the the IMAX, as Ingrid likes to say, fairy dust that makes it a highly differentiated immersive experience. So,
1: how did you how did you go about actually getting that license to be able to import it here?
2: Hmm. Well, you know, I would just say that you know, being entrepreneurs um, Mm -hmm. and being brave. yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you know, not not being shy and being willing to explore the benefit of the Internet, um, linking you all up. You can send an email to anybody in the world and it's what's your pitch. It's it's a three-minute exactly, elevator right? pitch. So. And literally I still have the email that, that I sent to IMAX, mm-hmm. you know, selling Trinidad and Tobago as a location, um, saying we should explore this, we think it's a good market. And um, I think that would have been sometime in 2009. So it literally was an email, hey, let's explore this, and then the conversation just evolved. And, they eventually so they sent down... The they were receptive. I mean, they were trying to grow their brand. They were looking for a yeah. bigger footprint. They were
0: looking for more screens because they didn't occupy many screens right. at that point in time. So they were... You know, it was kind of like a win-win for IMAX. They were going to get more screens in the Caribbean um, and we would have been able to bring the, this technology... Right, the Trinidad. first screen in the Caribbean. Exactly, so. exactly. I think just that Trinidad met some of the requirements. You know, it had a, a very good catchment... Um, in terms of
2: movie goals in terms of a movie going market um, what else was great I mean, to yeah d- density mean, you know the population no, no, we per capita income basically a
0: big movie going yeah
2: audience, mm-hmm. you
0: know so some of those things really sold IMAX on you know what let's try it cuz they also thought this is a single screen in a, a little caribbean island and very early in the game i mean we you know broke records with them most um, first weekends in the caribbean we were in the top 3 Performing screens.
2: In all of LATAM. In so that includes LATAM. Brazil where the ticket prices are, you know, I can't say double hours, but at least 1.5 times. Um, but we're just getting a big attendance. Okay.
1: So okay.
0: It was so, really so, so. being brave. It was using technology. Right. You know, the internet mm-hmm. had been to Trinidad since, what, 1998? So, and plus his contacts as mm-hmm. well. Um, just made it kind of happen and being right. in the right place at the right time. And
2: having good, good financial partners, you know. I mean, I, I have to, yes. to, to stress, uh, you know, your your brother, Kerwin Valley, and the AIC team at the time, now KCL Capital Market Brokers, played a real pivotal role, you know, in that same team in kind of, you know, understanding the vision because we would have pitched it to, I'd say, at least five different institutions, including the, the place where we were working at the time that had a, a big pool of capital to invest. And um, you know we got a lot of eh, maybe uh, we're not so sure, mm-hmm. and a lot and a few no's, outright no's. And um, but I must say the KCL team kind of um, understood the the value proposition and the differentiator that we were bringing to the table. So I think it takes that kind of ecosystem of like-minded persons to really bring a new a new venture to the market. All right, that's
1: that's great, that's awesome. Okay, so in terms of the business itself, right? So at the time of IMAX launching here, there was the market, the market was more of a low end yeah. kind of pricing for screen. So you get, know, you pay a normal amount of money, you get two movies in the theater for I don't know six hours or so. But now you're saying, here's one movie, it's almost triple the price. Yeah. So how do you, how do you go about executing that and like marketing that, comforting the market to be able to just say, all right, we'll give this a try, we like this, we're gonna keep doing this.
0: Um, A few things, you need, well we got expert guidance in building out the marketing of the the IMAX experience, that's one thing, Um, we didn't purport to know everything Kevin, Um, we were entrepreneurs but we recognized we needed help and we sought the help and brought it on board, that's one thing uh, I would say, it was key to it. I also think that um, movie going is also a very personal experience. So a lot of word of mouth of bringing people in, and then they spoke of the experience, and that's how the brand really built itself. Um, I think part of the success story as well is being able very early in the game to bring on um, sponsors that can really bring the crowds and underwrite some of the cost. Um, I would like to say Digicel was one of the ones that was with us as well as Atlantic Atlantic. when we um, developed the ultimate field trip. So it was a kind of two-pronged attack again in differentiating an ultimate field trip, which is not known really in market. I mean, we all go out on a field trip, but this was like the ultimate field
1: trip. How does the field trip
0: look? Well, really Atlantic underwrites the cost of tickets and transport, because those are two key things that are barriers to going out on a field trip. so and also they help with marketing they, they help with the push because they have a very good relationship with the Ministry of Education which we've also developed with them as well but they have really helped us bring the kids through and early adopters of your experience when you, when you get them early then they want to come back for the Hollywood uh, so I would say getting expert help with executing the marketing of the, of the, of the space and because of what a movie-going experience is like word of mouth, you know, Kevin, did you go to IMAX as yet? You have to go, because you have to see the movie like this. Right. Um, really helped propel the, the brand. Can so I watch that, 3D anywhere else? Exactly, and people are discerning they'll pay for quality. So you're right, you know, before we came from $20 for two movies, um, people will come out to pay more for a, a better experience, because it cannot be seen anywhere else.
2: And it still remains a relatively affordable kind of luxury, you know, in the sense when you compare it to even a trip to Tobago or you know, nonetheless Miami or Disney World, or, it, it, it's in the affordability factor for, for most people, you know. So I think that's um, even just, I mean, it may just be a special night, but we always recall, you know, hearing uh, an executive from a large chain in Thailand speak through one of our consultants that we brought down, and he spoke about how he would create these lavish, you know, I mean, basically the movie theater had a sauna in it. You know, really a lot of almost like gold stuff and, you know, all kind of, you know, niceties that would go along with the experience. And um, he was in some very impoverished areas and people would question, well, you know, what are you doing? You're crazy, you know, but he was able to kind of build a market on the premise that people would would go and save their money, come from very rural areas. And you're talking about, you know, Indochina, Thailand and Cambodia and this area, Vietnam. And um, descend and, and spend a, a night for two or three hours in his basically five-star movie theater, which was a lot less than the five-star hotel, which was a lot less than a, than a, a trip to you know some beach in Thailand. So um, it kind of resonated with us that you know, irrespective of the kind of socioeconomic economic group you are, people like to have good experiences, and if it's still within an affordability factor. They'll save, they'll collaborate, they will um, you know, do what it takes to have that experience and if it's a really enjoyable experience, they'll come back.
1: Great experiences that come create customer service, right? So how do you hire and train your staff and what is your like what's your processes there to develop that system of of great customer service to create those great experiences?
0: Well I'd say we're still learning. Um, you know, what is it that makes a really good Ambassador, a Cinema One ambassador. Um, I think where it starts really is in the recruitment and selection of the the person. The person, one of the first questions we ask on an interview do you love movies? How often do you go to the movies? Because some of that enthusiasm needs to be part of delivering the customer service experience. Because if you're not into it,
1: you're not going to be able to deliver it. But if they say, I don't really love movies, but I love people.
2: That helps. That helps. Yeah, that, that helps tremendously, help. I it think. It
0: does. It does. But it, part of it also needs to be, you need to, uh, um, when you when you go to a space, just like how I'm saying, you know, did you see the movie? How was the movie? You need some of that enthusiasm because people like to talk. Yeah. We are a very social um, society. So that's one key thing in terms of looking at when you're interviewing someone, attitude. You're right, attitude plays a, a big part of it. But love of the brand and love of the movies, mm-hmm. because then you can deliver better service based on it, because you believe in what you're selling.
2: It kind of enshrines the purpose of the organization too. If um, you know an ambassador kind of is into the you know the, the art form, then it's a lot easier for them to kind of become part of a greater purpose, which is around bringing you know enjoyment and moments of thrills and you know exuberance and excitement. You know a lot, a lot of adjectives, but. Or even enlightenment, you know what I mean? If you go to a movie and you actually learn something about how you should perceive the world or how we should interact with each other on a human level, then um, you know that person is a lot more apt to kind of be excited about their job, you know, because they feel like they're making a difference in in, in people, basically.
0: It takes continuous training as well, mm-hmm. because people, you know, after a time you do become jaded. This is not rocket science work. It's it's delivering. Um, service. Um, a lot of it is dealing with like hospitality, if I had to give it a, a sector or a discipline. Um, and it does take continuous training to remind people, you know, be nice, be polite, um, be helpful. Right. Yeah, so those would be two maybe key things. Uh, I would say that we're learning, we don't get right all the time, um, but we continuously look at it as well. Uh, I, w- I would like to think that we're very close to our audience our patrons, mm-hmm. we are here every day, um, we see them um, we interact with them when we come out into the hall so, uh, and and we are very close to the customer feedback um, a lot of what we do is driven by technology as well WhatsApp, we, we have WhatsApp groups that keep us very close to our customers mm-hmm. as well, so as things happen we can deal with them quite quickly
1: okay. So I understand that Yes, you're right. You know, right now both of you guys are here every day, more or less, and you know, you both the faces of the brand. But for a while, in you were the face of the brand while Brian was still working at
2: the previous
1: <laughs> joint venture. Yes. Yeah. So, how did how were you able to, to manage that? Like, what were the kind of challenges you experienced? That like, I know you also manage the Facebook page and stuff. Yes. So, and so, high trafficked. It. Yes. you know, yes. a lot of comments and all that. So, you manage that.
0: Um, well, you know, I, I, had, I have a background in PR, so I'm kind of accustomed to uh, being the face of an org. So it wasn't very difficult to step into that role. Um, I would say, though, that it is challenging because everybody knows me. Everybody comes in here and also says that, you know, they know me. So they, they kind of use it as a, as a sword keep customer service in check as well um, so we walk it in the way that um, we want to deliver we always keep the customer at mind uh, at, 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 in terms of the priority dealing with the challenges sometimes I do need to unplug and I do and I I, I am training you know the management team below us um, that that is just below us to also share the load and become little mini faces of the brand as well. Uh, and there needs to be a, a somewhat of a handoff to the up the baton to them, um, and for us to move into the expansion mode more so than ever. Because now my energies will not be you know totally a hundred percent on those areas. I need to be fed information from those those spaces right now. So the challenge of it is handing over because. Um, you know, I, I still see this as my fourth child, you know, cinema one. Uh, so I, I do guard it very jealously, but it is a little bit of letting go that needs to be done, which I, I
1: recognize for us to grow. I like that you say, I like that you speak about handing over. Yes. Right. So part of being investable, we say, is that is a business that will survive generations, right? It's going to be passed on and it just it creates sustainable wealth. Yes. But for the owners of the company, right? So how do you plan the business to be passed on? How do you plan for it to be generational?
2: Well, that's an excellent question. Yeah, I mean, it has... I think it, um, it's multi-layered because I think there are a number of elements that allow that to be successful. Ingrid kind of highlighted one, which is really ensuring that I think the, the management team, um, which has worked closely with kind of the, the founders, Um, And and in many cases, they're founders themselves because there are a few who have actually been here since we first opened, you know, um, and have progressed with the organization. But I think it's important that they are, you know, properly educated, that they are um, properly kind of brought into the business arena from a networking standpoint um, and and a little more visible, as Ingrid is saying, so that people reach out to them just like they would reach out to us for um, ideas about the business and for just kind of... Maintaining the entity itself.
0: Could I say we're kind of flat, you know? It's not like a. Yeah. There's not many persons to get to here and speak to us, you know. When we we have meetings every week and we ventilate everything about the business, you know, a lot of times people hold information back because you you feel like well, no, you you know you don't need to know that. We we don't run the business like that at all. Yeah. Um, we we run it fairly flat, and similarly the staff know that they can come and speak to us i mean sometimes it's difficult you have to tell them listen i'm going into a meeting and you know be able to speak to you right now but i think mm-hmm. um being accessible so that they understand how we think in terms of the direction right. and the vision and they they come along on the ride with us and they share in it because they're also helping us to craft it along the way because right. they have a voice right.
2: but part of the whole ipo process as well i think you know dovetails with the goal of sustainability long term because what it does is it gives you different pillars besides just kind of the original shareholder group. Yeah. Now you have kind of a wider shareholder group, yeah. right? Now you have the directors that, you know, you're actually compelled to have independent directors who um, you know, give another voice, uh, another level of guidance and um, who also will play a, a key role, I think, in long-term sustainability. Because at the experience. most senior yeah, yeah the most yeah. senior yeah. level, they understand how the business is operating and, and mm-hmm. what needs to happen. You also have the anchor of kind of the community, because now the community begins to have a much stronger role in the organization and in its well-being. So, I think part of our, you know, thrust towards kind of three pillars we were discussing about how you create more sustainability and, and build wealth long-term. Um, you know in terms of kind of anchoring the business with uh, you know employees the directors uh, and investors as well as the community um, I think the processes in the business are also very important because I think most kind of small businesses medium companies even even you know even larger companies lack really well-defined policies and procedures which can really help the business to kind of enshrine um, you know and concretize long term um, what the founder group or the original kind of Owners of the business would have really thought were the real elements that make it successful. If that's not really well documented and, and becomes part of the real DNA and culture of the organization, it, it stands the risk of being forgotten. That is true. That is true. And not
0: executed well. Right. And you know. And I think where we are is really now trying to concretize and refine those policies and procedures. I think the responsibility of, you know, going public and seeing 400 plus shareholders as part of your business, you feel really responsible to be successful. And that sustainability, um, the, the processes and the policies are you know, critical to the sustainability of the business. First, Brian and
1: Ingrid. That's right. So somebody, the, the first thing in terms of the regulatory filing and then you engage the value. You so, want, want to lay out a blueprint for the listeners, for the watchers, mm-hmm. for the audience. Yes. So, so they'll understand, okay, if I want to do this, if I want to go, if I want to make my company public,
2: then this is what I can expect. Right, right. Well, certainly the key document is the prospectus, right? And it really kind of um, lays out the plan, um, as, as well as just who the, what the business is, what the business does and what its plan is for growth. So um, that in and of itself can be a mammoth task depending upon you know the, the team's background. I mean, fortunately for me, kind of coming out of a, an investment banking environment, um, I, I had downloaded prospectuses before and, and read them. Um, so it, it, it wasn't difficult to begin thinking about crafting um, our own prospectus from other ones that had been crafted I would globally. say we
0: are just brief, because
2: anybody downloading a prospectus
0: of 100 pages, that's, that's yeah. intimidating. Because you guys' prospectus was like
1: 94 pages or something. Yes. right? How long did it take you to put that together? How that, many people that, did it take to put that Yeah,
2: that was, that was like last year's uh, summer vacation, the first yeah. phase. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nice it's like every day we're going to get up, we're going to write the prospectus, Half right?
0: the day was prospectus, the next half of the day we'll was vacation. We'll hang out, vacation. yeah.
2: So, um, no, it did take a while to kind of to get it to the point. And then I think, you know, we were kind of modeling it, because, because there aren't many IPOs in the local jurisdiction. Um, it was modeled after one's filed in the, the, the SEC in the U.S. in many cases. And um, there are a lot of differences between the SEC in the U.S. and the, the SEC in Trinidad and Tobago. So I think that you know, we would have thought we're in a state of readiness and when we would have submitted the documents, um, you know, I would say probably like November of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it took about two to three months before the SEC got back to us and said, well, a lot of things that you referenced inside of here aren't applicable in our jurisdiction. So I think that was kind of one of the learnings and a way yeah. of really saving time. Um, would have been to kind of really focus more on you know, entities that have listed in the domestic landscape um, versus abroad. And you may find out more about whatever your particular industry is, because in our case, you know, the movie industry there, you know, there are three players here locally, um, but you know, globally there are a lot of chains. And Many of whom have, at some point in time, gone public or done bond issues, or so. There's a lot of um, a lot of information about the industry and the global landscape, but all that you know um, needs to be relevant to our local environment. Okay.
0: I think another key thing as well um, that lent gravitas to our prospectus was evaluation and getting right. it done independently. So that's a key a key part. It is a key. So part in terms of, of
2: documentation, certainly the prospectus and the valuation document yeah. itself are probably the the, the main you know, set of documents yeah. that you actually need to be able to um, to to deliver to the SEC along with your audited financial statements. Which, you know, um, if I had any recommendations to the powers that be, I would probably say, um, if you really want to push the SME sector, maybe you shouldn't require that they have to have five years of audited statements, because that could be a heavy lift for some businesses, mm-hmm. and it really could be preventative for some as well. Um, you know, you may have a garage.com type idea, you know, something you did in your, your dorm room with your friend, um, really exciting prospect, you've assembled a wonderful team, um, you don't have five years of audited statements to be able to take to the public market because you, it's 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 in its, uh, you know, infancy, infancy. right? So, um, that's something that probably, I think, needs a little more uh, attention.
1: How, um, would you, how, how would you um, advise the public to assess the company, say with, I don't know, two, three years. I'm like to get a proper, a full picture of the company through various economic cycles and so.
2: Well, I mean, it would be, you know, it's not easy in any case. But I'm just saying, in terms of the balance of kind of, um, you know, bringing more issues to market, I'm certain that, you know, having audited financial statements for five years, um, it, a lot of companies just won't have that. You know, that's just the reality. So you've already limited the, of yeah, that the, could, the that group of have good ideas. ideas. You know? They may have management accounts, you know what I mean, that they would have had an, a bona fide accountant who's ICAT registered, you know, put together. Um,
0: but that's what I was going to say. Maybe, you know, having an independent financial institution that is recognized, do your books, I think, is a, a good thing to do. Don't just have your friend who's an accountant. You know, have a, a pedigree institution that is recognized present your financials, that provides confidence
2: yeah. as well. Even going to three years might yes. be a uh, you know kind of a middle ground, you know, um, as an idea. I mean, I know you've got a banking background, so you might <laughs> say, well, <laughs> I don't you know if I believe those be numbers, in. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 so, uh, but it, just just, a, just an insight, and the goal there would really just be to widen the, the number of participants and the potential prospective entities that would aspire to list on an exchange, because then what you could potentially do is you could say, well, subsequent to your listing, you have to have audited statements done by one of these five firms so then you have that, you know, certainty um, you know, around, you know, how record keeping is done and, and, and the veracity of the the numbers themselves. The kind of mentorship element, you know, post IPO, which is kind of what we're learning about now. Yeah. But to get to where we are now, I mean, in addition to the prospectus and the valuation report, the other key element would be the team. Because you really do need a team that's gonna assist in the process. And that team would have to have a very strong Um, Attorney I think would be really really critical Mm -hmm. Um, And the SME exchange has a number of tax elements associated with it as well, so I think um, You know you you probably want some advice from you know an audit firm or an accounting firm that uh, You know understands the legislative framework and the tax benefits Because you know there there are certain I mean one of the things that we kind of learned is that you've got in a way two disparate I can't say disparate but different bodies in the SEC and the Stock Exchange, and um, they both have governance roles to play with any listed company, right? Um, the SEC is you know, more of the legal um, regulatory entity, and the Stock Exchange is, you know, it, it's the organization that really governs all the principles associated with trading, and et cetera, et cetera, and they both have separate rules. And um, you have to feel and have a willingness, I think, to, to really dive into the details and read some of the legislation to understand what is required, um, that would be a strong, or, or have an attorney who's really going to give you all the advice. Go deeper into the, the valuation process. Mm-hmm. Right, so let's walk us
1: through that. How do you go about engaging the evaluator in the first place?
2: Well, I mean, I think talking to, uh, you know, respected entities who have a have experience mm-hmm. in the evaluation kind of domain, which is a specialized area of, of finance, um, and there's, you know, certain Credentials that entities can bring to the table as well. Certainly, all the major accounting audit firms would have a kind of advisory division which would handle valuations. So, you know, we basically decided on, um, you know, looking at some of the bigger, more respected names. As Ingrid mentioned, you know, we thought that we needed a team who had some pedigree, who could bring um, a level of, uh, you know, clout. And, and a sense of credibility to our issue especially as a first-time issue a new industry new tier you know new group of people um, so we, we thought we needed some some names basically to support um, and bring credibility to us so we you know we shortlisted about three we went out and, and asked for quotes on outline what we wanted to do and um, ultimately we chose KPMG as our evaluation team and I think a lot of that was because of the relationship that we had with them from an audit standpoint and also because um, we knew just some of the people and we felt that like they kind of had a, some insights into the business and we wouldn't have to really re-explain about what we do because we explained it every year. Even though it was a, a different team. We knew they would have that knowledge base within the overall umbrella of the organization. Um, but I think more importantly was also the fact that they worked with you know, on the global scale yeah. a lot of the very, very large um, they had done publicly traded on circuits on the
0: bigger right. chains in, right. in North America. So we felt that they came with a lot of experience. Maybe not necessarily the local office, but definitely they had the repository of information with uh, available to them
2: right. uh,
0: through the international. And offices. you would know Kevin. There's
2: well. a, there are a lot of methodologies <clears throat> that you can use right. for valuing, you know, companies, comparable companies, comparable trading market entities, um, you know, discounted cash flow, and so we kind of went in. Again, with my background, kind of having an idea as to what we thought would be the, the best approach, um, and which you know, in my you know, experience was either a mix of them all or leaning more towards the DCF. So I think that was another thing that lean, you know, made us lean a little more towards uh, KPMG because they kind of spoke the language that we were familiar with and were looking at more of a um, you know, future income-based approach to doing their valuation. So
1: let's talk about the process of the engagement. How did they conduct the engagement?
2: Um, well, professionally, I mean, basically getting information from yes. the entity, right. And yeah. then um, we gave a you know, lot of information. Yeah, all your We did a statements. lot of homework.
0: We did a lot of research and gave it to them because right. they use a lot of our, our yeah. information. They would <laughs> sanitize also, your
2: projections, yeah. mm-hmm. but then what? What I thought was the, the deeper dive was that um, we certainly would have ideas about expansion locations and where we want to go, and and um, it wasn't good enough to say, oh, we want to be in X Y Z city. You know, okay, prove it. Right? Yes. Where's yes. your agreement? Where are the designs? Where is he? They wanted to understand that you really had a, some kind of concretized uh, plans around, around where um, you wanted to go, why you wanted to go there, what's that market, you know, appetite going to look like? Because ultimately, you know, we were looking at potentially different jurisdictions, and we ended up with kind of a blended, you know, weighted average cost of capital depending upon. Okay, well, here's your Trinidad weighted average cost of capital, here's your other Caribbean weighted average cost of capital, here's your U.S. weighted average cost of capital, you know, so it got very sophisticated in terms of looking at discount rates associated with where you want to build your new theaters.
1: Okay, so the important thing there for, for listeners, so for the audience, is to have the systems in place to have your business and your financial information readily available.
2: Yeah.
1: For, oh, definitely, for definitely. The, for the Yeah, for the
2: yeah. Yeah, you, you have to have. You and know, it
0: has to be a firm dearth of it. It can't just be a, a surface level. Nice. It has to be a, a bulk of information that has credibility, has good sources of information. Um, and as well, you, using your own analytics, because, I mean, we'd been in business for yeah. five, six years. So we, we knew the trends. Right. And our trends really reflected trends in other markets. So it, it gave it, it lent to the credibility of when we said right. it can do this. Yes, you know, it gave it a lot more. Um, Believability. Mm-hmm. If I had to look for
2: a word, and that goes back to your original point of how many years of historical performance do you need to, to demonstrate that credibility? Well, certainly they would go. They went back a few years and looked at you know ratios of attendance to you know purchases and a, a number of different metrics, and then extrapolated those metrics moving forward um, to really kind of sanitize our projections to say, okay, well this makes sense because look what they did before, yeah. and then we were able to demonstrate well. Here's what other entities are doing in the region. Here's what other entities are doing abroad. And this is why there's um, you know some credibility, some veracity to our projections. So you have the valuation.
1: <laughs> and so I know valuations usually give you a range. So you say, this is the low yes. end, this is the price on the high end, this is the mid range, this is the fair
2: value range, this is the fair value mm-hmm. price. Yes.
1: So how did you go about deciding, OK, what price we want to price our
2: um, offering? I mean, you, you raise a very good point because ultimately, um, the advice that a um, valuation firm provides is just that: it's advice to the the company, to the entity, to the shareholders, to the management team that this is what we think you should do, right? And um, we kind of uh, arrived at kind of a wide range and a narrow range, and um, we thought, you know, in consultation with our investor group, in consultation with you know the management team, um, that You know, we would stay almost at the midpoint of the wide range, which just happened to be at the top point, the top end of the narrow range. So, um, you know, and it was about a 20% discount off of what we would have initially contemplated. But um, at that stage, we we felt like we would still move forward. We had invested a lot of time. Um, We saw this, and one of our points of advice, I think, for any entity looking at finance, that you got to look at it, especially in the Caribbean context, at at on a milestone basis. So we saw this as a milestone. Not, not the end game, but in, very, in many ways, the beginning. Um, and as long as we could kind of get to the starting blocks and you know, the, the gun could go off and, and we're running, well the race has begun, okay, we're running now. So um, you can see I was a track and field guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was. We're moving, right? So, um, so, so anyway, you know, with that in mind, you know, it, it, it made us feel as though we didn't have to get the, the best evaluation. Uh, we had to get what we thought was a fair evaluation, an evaluation that we could could sell and i'm very happy that we you know opted to go with kind of the mid-range because we did get some queries during the process about your valuation and we did have some people say oh yeah we think it's too rich some people say we think it's too you know it's, it's priced you, you underpriced it you know so we got a myriad of of responses so we think that um you know kind of being at the mid-range of the wider range that was indicated it's fair to investors and um and it gives us a good chance to, to deliver okay.
1: Let's talk about marketing the the IPOD roadshow, selling selling this issue.
2: Wow, that's another
0: thing you need to advise the public. Be ready to take your vitamins and. At least track and field. Yeah, (laughs) you know. um, It is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are not a big entity. So we were just really fortunate. We had a plant um, that is attractive, that allowed us to have many. Interactions with different audiences. Um, Again, coming from a a PR background, um, I did leverage some of my friends, the practitioners in the space to assist us with the publicity. Uh, And again, me being very close to social media, I used many avenues to try and get the, the, the message out there about coming on board and owning a piece of movie magic. But it is very intense. And we've had from some quarters saying they didn't know, you know, enough about it. They didn't get enough information about
2: what the offering was. Um, and but we had some who have commended us and said, wow, you guys were everywhere. We, yes. we saw you in a lot of places. So it kind of depends upon how you were linked in and connected to the world, yes. I think.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do think part of it in looking at it is you do need to have a, a very close relationship with your broker. And I think you do need to push a broker. You do need to challenge them. Have you been speaking to your constituents? What have they been saying? And get the feedback so you can also um, amend your message as well, so that you ensure that you get out to all the stakeholders who yeah. could have potentially yeah. come on board. I would say that. Would I think be one easy. of the
2: mindset changes, um, but you would kind of understand it, Kevin. I think a little bit from the financial advisory side that um, as a an issuer you're kind of used to being out selling, you know, whether we're selling tickets or whether we're selling our old day circuits. And so we're used to kind of being in sales road. But, you know, for this process, you kind of you give your pitch Mm -hmm. and then you've kind of got to let the team that you've assembled, you know, um, in this case, you know, a brokerage team really go out and do some of the heavy lifting and and the selling to, to really bring in the, you know, the investors, because ultimately, they're the ones who are because the interface the to take the orders. Because are speaking to their
0: clients. We are not necessarily, we don't, we don't have a direct to their clients, the brokers between us and right. those clients. Um, so we really needed to work, I believe, a little closer with them to get the message out to those yeah, clients.
2: I think that would have been, you know, in hindsight, you know, when we decide to, to do another issue, and I'm sure we will at some point in time, um, we probably will want to allow more time to have closer dialogue with all of the brokerage, the whole brokerage community. Yes. Because I think we were very focused with the lead broker and they got to know us very well. They, you know, you know were passionate about the business um, as we are. Um, but I think when you start to look at the other brokers, the, the sub brokers, um, there was a lot less. Um, interaction that we would have had with them. We basically just had one meeting, yeah. maybe one and a half. One and a half, and, because um, I think
0: we had a public meeting, and I saw some of those brokers right. come back. and then they to came back to we a brokerage meeting. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yes. And um, so, you know, I don't think they had really enough time to digest the business, so that they could could effectively sell it. Um, I must say, one or two did very well. They really brought in a, a wide swath of of individuals, and we're, you know, happy to report that, you know, we do, as Ingrid mentioned, it was over four hundred, you know investors of which probably you know less than 10 were institutional so a lot of those are individuals who um, are patrons and we want to say thank you for your patronage and and thank you for your investment and we're charged with trying to take it to the next level with the business and excited that we've got a great pipeline still of um of wonderful things to happen i
0: guess maybe advice too is using um urban radio if i had to to say urban radio. Um, yes yes i mean i went on Boom champions the first time I mean somebody had suggested to go on Sunny Bling I was like okay Uh, I didn't make it to Sunny But really having those voices out there Those interactions Those are very popular vehicles that many persons look at Uh, It's a a wide range of uh, society that they engage And um, I believe that don't be afraid of thinking well it's not your market because you just never knew who is looking at those vehicles um, to get your message out there.
1: What well, I'm interested in finding out is how did all your entrepreneurial endeavors before this, you know, I think you think there were three or four, how did all of these endeavors
2: prepare you for this idea? What
0: lot of lean
2: in? Yeah, yeah, I mean just a, a you know, a sense of um, tenacity and and um a willingness i think to explore a lot of different opportunities um when it came when it when it comes to financing um particularly i think you know that's one of the the good lessons that i learned with you know working in the massey group you know we would try and raise capital for a, a, an approved capex project and you know they were very always very adamant hey well shop around you know talk to a number of different banks um don't look at one structure and so a lot of really good insights uh, i think i learned um know, in that experience. And and I think just in terms of processes and I mean, I think in the early phases, you know, going back two decades ago, we really learned about, you know, rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty Mm -hmm. and um, and doing everything that it takes to just stay in business and pay your mortgage and send your kids to school, you know, like really the basics, because, you know, like every entrepreneur, I'm sure there's sometimes when things don't go the way you plan. And when, you know, you've got to have hard conversations with staff or, or even with yourselves about hey maybe I need to get a job <laughs> you know this isn't really working the way I want it to work um, I think
0: all this, the things this. that you read about entrepreneurs we have lived you know you hear the stories of you know your friends helped you invest and you used to max out your credit cards I mean we could talk to those stories over and over we could talk to our long nights um, you know you're doing everything on some days yeah. you're doing everything um, that any business just to make sure that the lights are on and that it continues to the next level. And also, I guess, not being afraid of failure, I think is, I mean, of course you worry, but if you fail, you move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, I think you don't, really don't put all your eggs in one basket too, um, in terms of business, Mm -hmm. uh, so that, okay, this doesn't work out, you move on to the next thing and you don't let it cripple you if it doesn't work out. You gotta be able
2: to pivot, you know, like, like any successful business, you know, to, to what's coming next or to, to what you should be doing. You, know, you gotta have the will and the courage sometimes because it's not always easy because you may have a, a baby that you've created as we've talked about you know, um, that you need to pivot away from or, 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 or focus more on because you realize that that's where the, the long-term growth potential could be. Um,
1: I'd love to hear your one of the most significant setback stories and how are you able to overcome that, how do
0: you feel? I'll defer to the chair to start.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were in the telecommunications business, um, you know, in the early days of the internet. Um, we had an ISP called eFreeNet, and eFreeNet purported to give free internet access. Um, and this was like in 2000. So this was really, you know, a pioneering step um, in the the dial-up days, right, you know? Right, you remember those days, right? um, All those funny sounds. I was in so, model um,
0: with our first child when we Right, exactly. So she was in the flyer, you know. <laughs>
2: subscribe to eFree, get a PC. We had all kind of novel ideas, right? So um, we started to, to gain some traction. I always remember that. Uh, you know, we would travel in those days sometimes, and you know, we would hop in a taxi, go down to City Gate, and I remember the taxi one day had a little our CD-ROM in it that had the eFree portal. And this is a taxi driver, you know, like, how did you get that? Where did you, you know, we're just asking him, oh, I, he started selling it to us. You know, this is the greatest thing. You go on this, you get on the internet. So we quickly amassed with eFreeNet about a user base of maybe ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people. Yeah. And I think we kind of brought on the ire of our, you know, now good friends at TSTT, you know, where they thought, and this was, you know, again, a different regime kind of. You know, pre-real liberalization, so it was really a monopoly player and no one else. Pre-DigiCell or everything, so um, business grew. It grew. It grew relatively quickly, and we became a bit of a threat and a bit of a nuisance, I think, to our good friends at TCT. And nuisance. That, yeah, and that, that that ended unceremoniously, where um, we found that our business was literally crippled overnight, and that that sent us through a real a real dark moment, I think, as as entrepreneurs, where we didn't really. Have much going on, you know, not much business, and you know the network was like that's the business, that was the the arteries and the veins that kept the, the you know the the blood pumping, and um, you know if there's no network there's there's no blood pumping. Hmm. So um, you know Ingrid had to go back and get a job, and we had to really shrink the business down. We had to give up our office, and we actually got into some litigation with TSTT, and um, and I think it was you know kind of going through that that nadir, that dark point, but still saying hey we think that. You know the telecom sector is going to eventually open we believe that we could partner with someone we think there's a a good way of ending this bad story with tstt and um you know the story ended up i think relatively positively in that um about three years later so that was a, a you know not an easy two three months we're talking about but two three years um where you know i was smiling in the in the press and shaking the hands of the you know the, the COO and the head of legal affairs consummating one of Trinidad's first interconnection agreements between a small operator because we had forced a deal with Massey. We had then cut an interconnection deal with the same company, was the, the main shareholder that had been disconnected and everything and, and left left um, in, a, in a difficult position. Was now doing an interconnection agreement with TCT. So I think that that trough of being able to kind of come to a low point but not really give up and 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 utilize all that you had had learned yeah. to still stay focused on how you can, you know, concretize a, an investment deal with a huge conglomerate like, like Massey and 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 still get get a deal done with T S C T. So it kinda it made us realize that hey, you know, even in business people sometimes are, you know, they're not the best friends. Um, then they become good friends. I mean we ended up selling the business back to TSTT. TST. <laughs> so so that's that's a whole story if you think about it, you know. So That's another um, segment. Right, and, <laughs> and another like an segment. Another,
0: another TV show. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, right. think, I think for me, um, when we were kind of chatting before, when we then became the minority shareholders with Marcy, um, it was then Neil and Marcy and the company was then 360 Communications, when we did the business-to-business um, internet connectivity services, um, we went as a husband and wife team because we, we were the minority shareholders um, until you know the conglomerate came to us and said, well, you know, husbands and wives don't work in the same subsidiary. You
1: mm. so know,
0: I was like,
1: and they can't co-own.
0: Correct. Correct. So that was really a slap for me. I'll be honest. Oh, of course it is, because you know I'm a, 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 not an, a 60s woman. I am a 2000. You know, I'm a millennium woman in terms of we came together and we we presented together and we built the proposal together all the time in the negotiations i was never in the background so it it was brian and ingrid, ingrid always so when this um you know communication came to us uh, we said fine first we said not fine but we you know when we get lemons we make lemonade fine he will be the md and i will still work i just won't be on the payroll and that still was not enough, because they still felt, you know, husband and wife dynamics in the office place um, was counterproductive um, to business. So that is when I decided, okay, look, I will go off and do my MBA, um, retool myself at that time, because up to then I just had my my, my first degree in tourism management, um, and then coming out of the MBA experience, you know. In life timing is everything um, and us you know looking at the IMAX model it gave me time to, to to really craft the business plan as part of my practicum and as we like to say the rest is history so now I have created my own space uh, in the cinema world as an exhibition owner um, so out of that out of the really dark time I think has given born you know a a fantastic child and a fantastic business model so now he has come over to the dark side um, (laughs) with the business correct Um, Correct. so I would say those would be two of the yeah cases, you see the
2: commonality in terms of you know kind of going through a low point but looking at what else you can do and what are the lessons that are positive lessons that you can take to move to the next step you have to be
0: patient and
2: resilient
0: and resilient, those are two things. Um, because you, if you give in, you might miss the opportunity. That is, it seems far away, but in a lifetime, three years is not a long time. And two years, you know, I did my MBA in what, two and a half years? It's not a long time to, for things to happen or out of an adverse situation.
1: And here we are, first IPO. And the SME, yes. exchange. Okay, so before I ask my last question, I'm just curious. I wonder how is it working together as a married couple? <laughs>
0: um
2: You weren't supposed to ask that question. That wasn't on takes, the brief seat, right? Yeah, <laughs> but,
0: yes, but it, it's not easy. It's mm. not easy, but no. Relationship is easy, whether in business or personally. Um, I think what has happened is we've been working together for a long time. Um, Since the first it date, I think? Almost, almost <laughs> second. Um, I, I think part of it, both persons need to realize you are on the same team. So even though you have differences, you will always come back to, you know, but both, both of us are on the same side, fighting same for the purpose, same thing. Same yeah. um, So, and we recognize we're two people, two different styles, two management styles, you could tell in delivery, but we, we, we are two different personalities. I think um, respect for each other is big. Um, that helps us work together. So even though there are differences, there always will be, because there are different ways of, of getting to the same goal, I think if it's underpinned with respect um it does help and an, with the longevity of working together right
2: that yeah, would say you, you kind of need to fragment your your life um and kind of understand that the home life is different from the business life you know so um
0: that takes time to yeah, yeah and that that yeah. takes time
2: to kind of have that that's a level of kind of emotional intelligence and and I think um and a sense of responsibility as well that that both parties have to have to understand that hey you know we can we may quibble at home about home things, but we're united front on, on the, you know, in the business front. Um, or vice versa, you too, may have you know I mean? yeah. disagreements, um, and sometimes decisions need to be made. And I may make a decision, and she may make a decision, but I think we try and, and understand that, hey, in your domain, you will be the last say. I mean, we have a board as well, um, but managerial type issues, okay, well, you'll manage operations and, you know, PR, and marketing and you know programming and so you kind of have a work chart and like any good organization would do and be respectful of each other's respective domains. So
1: what would you say is the top piece of advice you give to entrepreneurs, business owners, CEOs, CFOs, anybody who's trying to raise financing on behalf of their company. I know you guys give a lot of advice but I just want to sum up the top piece of advice. Be patient
0: and persevere. If I had to say those two things, you have to be patient and persevere.
2: I would say really understand your business. Mm -hmm. I mean, understanding, when you mentioned CFOs and CEOs, I mean, really ensure that you understand the accounting and finance elements of your business. It's extremely difficult to raise capital if you you can't put forth a a viable plan um, using the language of business, which is accounting and finance. And I think a lot of... Um, business owners quite often are of the view that well you know I know my business I'm trading I'm I'm buying I'm selling I'm making money and let's see your accounts you know how are they looking are they even if they're just reviewed and not audited so I think kind of if you really are serious about raising capital as a a smaller business medium-sized business you really got to spend a a fair amount of time trying to really understand the accounting um, in your business so that you can determine whether or not this is a viable business or is this a a hobby, or is this a, as you were saying the other day, a lifestyle business? You know, so um, that would be my really key piece of advice.
0: I guess to one more thing. I know not to be prolonging it, but I think understanding the, the market as well. This market is not like an American market where people invest for different
2: reasons.
0: I think this market tends to pigeonhole on what's the return.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a dividend fee. yield kind of a market yes. versus a yes. capital appreciation, capital so growth. So how you,
0: how you put together your case needs to speak to that. Because if it doesn't, then
1: yeah.
0: it's unlikely it will be successful immediately in terms
1: of the raise. Wow, what a conversation. And imagine that conversation took place since the beginning of 2019. All right, so let's summarize what we learned here from Brian and Ingrid Jara. So first thing, We have to be brave as entrepreneurs. We have to try to be in the right place at the right time. We want to have the right financial partners who understand our mission and vision of our business. Of course, you have to be able to utilize your network and connections. Recognize when you need help in building out your knowledge and expertise. Things aren't always going to go as according to plan. So it's important to be able to be flexible, be able to recognize when something isn't working in your business and be able to pivot. Be prepared to have those difficult conversations, whether it be with your team, your staff, your partner, or even within yourself about the realities of your business. And of course, be able to pivot. This is important now more than ever and it will always be important now more than ever, whenever now is. Have the will and the courage to let go of an idea or to double down on belief about the long term potential of your business. Be patient, be resilient and persevere. Take the time to really understand your business. Ensure that you understand accounting and finance because it's really difficult and I'm speaking here as a banker, I'm speaking here as a business valuator, I'm speaking here as a private equity investor. It is really difficult. Raise capital for a company to raise capital. If you don't speak the language of business, which is accounting, as Brian said, and understand your market. Now, the local Trinidad Tobago market may be more dividend yield, um, steady income market, and when it comes to investors, than capital appreciation market, which is more in like the developing, in developed markets, sorry, like the US and what have you, and even in Jamaica where. You really see their stock exchange markets growing very rapidly, and you know starting to really make a name for itself. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention, and until next time, we are out.